You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. It's to welcome you all today to celebrate the lasting intellectual legacy of Eleanor Ostrom and to advance the conversation among contemporary social scientists and how to further our quest to understand the human condition. Uh, Lynn had a huge influence on our approach to research and graduate education here at George Mason, and her connection to our work has uh, deep roots that go all the way back to the very establishment of the Committee on Non-Market Decision-Making. Uh, my colleague Paul Alajica did his PhD under the supervision of the Ostroms, and my colleague Bobby Hersberg uh, worked alongside the Ostroms uh, at the workshop in po uh, political theory and policy analysis for many years. So when Lynn received the call, that call on October 12, 2009, many of us at GMU rejoiced as if she was our own faculty colleague. In fact, she was slated for a visit with us prior to her award, and despite the complicated scheduling that follows from such an award, she kept her commitment and spent a week with us. Uh, this was an extremely memorable visit, and as she met with each of the graduate students that were at the dissertation level to discuss their research in depth and to offer her encouragement. It was an amazing experience. In that room, by the way, was David Scarbeck, and uh, they talked at length about his work um, on the prisons and everything in the way that he framed that. And as many of you know, David is now a tenured professor at Brown uh, for precisely that work. And his second book on uh, prisons and uh, social order of the underworld is actually uh, involved in that. Uh, central to Lynn's approach was to place analytical priority on the creative and clever individuals who make up the groups that she is studying. There's always a variety of tensions and dilemmas in all situations of choosing in groups. And in order to explore these processes of constitutional craftsmanship from the bottom up, as she would describe it, um, Lynn uh, based her work in field work. Um, <clears throat> that is, um, she wanted to get to the point of view of the people that she was working with rather than the abstract. Um, now, she was in, in the borderland of economics and political science, and so that represented certain methodological challenges to her. And so Lynn developed a uh, approach which she called the method, a multiple methods methodology approach. Um, and this is highlighted in particular um, in an essay of hers in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences where she's talking about the pattern of resource use in forestries and she started with satellite imagery. She also went into the field, and then she figured out the various ways she thought the strategies were playing, and then she then tested that in a lab. And so I think the subtitle of her talk is From the Air on the Ground in the Lab or something like that. And this is kind of the way that she would approach that. I, I've tried to argue that her approach uh, did rational choice theory as if the choosers were human with all their foibles and fears. Um, and she did institutional analysis of it as if history mattered, path dependency, warts and all. Um, one of the things that's really, uh, she, she liked to talk about fallible but capable human choosers. 
um, that existed in these real, uh, real communities. In developing this approach, Lynn's research program cost disciplinary boundaries of political science, economics, sociology, history, and anthropology. If you look at the institutional analysis of development framework um, in her Nobel Prize address or in governing the commons, uh, she has developed it uh, um, along this following equation, which is you have an animating human actor, institutional filters, and then some equilibrating processes. Um, in short, we have preferences plus institutions equals outcomes. And the methodological bias is to seek to explain variation in the outcomes by way of variation in the institutions rather than in the unique characteristics of the animating actors in our studies. In Professor Zelizer's language, Lynn was part of the generation of thinkers that both engaged in extending the economic way of thinking into areas beyond the market economy, and she was a contextualist in the sense that she was always stressed the differences between the rules in use and the rules in form. And so she wanted us to look at the rules in use as a way to do it. That's actually how my own uh, engagement with her ideas started, was because I was trying to understand the operation of the Soviet economy, and I was directed by my professors to be in touch with her, and she immediately embraced that idea and, and, and helped me along. Anyway, today we're, we're here to uh, have a great honor to have Professor Viviana Zelizer, the Lloyd Kotzen uh, Professor of Sociology at Princeton. Professor Zelizer is among the leading scholars of economic sociology in the world. Her books and articles have delved deep into the economic lives of people. Her approach is grounded in social history, and thus he has sought, sought to re render intelligible the everyday life of ordinary people in their interpersonal relationships. Her m work moved beyond the earlier extensionist and the earlier contextualist positions and developed what she refers to as a connected lives approach to understanding human sociability in all the various walks of life. This has led Professor Zelizer to explore changing attitudes towards life insurance, children, and home care. She has demonstrated in her various studies how all of us use money and more generally economic activity to cre create, maintain, and renegotiate important intimate ties without necessarily damaging them. Far from corrupting intimacy, people regularly sustain their intimate ties with economic transactions. Professor Zelizer's topic for today is why and how do social relations matter for economic lives? Please join me in welcoming Professor Vivian Zelizer. a great introduction. I don't need to give a talk. He told you already all my stuff. <laughs> In any case, um, I am, uh, you know, it's, it's just such an honor and a joy to share uh, with you the launching of the Ostrom speaker series and to celebrate together the 10th anniversary of Eleanor Ostrom's Nobel Prize in Economics. I'm very grateful uh, to the Mercado Center's uh, F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics here at George Mason University for your invitation. Uh, and in considering my profound admiration uh, for Ostrom's revisioning of economic activity, the invitation, uh, and as Stephanie knows, and I want to thank Stephanie uh, for all your help in organizing this, the invitation was irresistible. Um, it's a... It's a Today is a splendid opportunity to honor Eleanor Ostrom by furthering the sort of interdisciplinary dialogue that she so vigorously fomented 
with her own research and with Vincent Ostrom at the Indiana University workshop they co-founded. Ostrom repeatedly decried disciplinary blindfolds that cramped intellectual progress by training scholars into, as she described it, and I quote, separate languages that do not help us identify the common parts, work parts, of all this buzzing confusion that surrounds our lives. So I imagine that she would approve of an economic sociologist paying tribute to a political scientist among economists. And although Ostrom and I uh, never met nor corresponded, and that's why I won't refer to her as Lynn, as did uh, those who knew her well, and despite the fact that our conceptual frameworks and methodologies do differ, we have shared a lifetime quest to figure out how people manage to organize their economic activities. And, and I know that that's uh, also your program's uh, project. I'm well aware that this is not just an ordinary economics faculty or students, and that your exceptional program is designed to facilitate meaningful interdisciplinary dialogue. Uh, you know, too often um, these efforts reduce to kind of window dressing, you know, hello, hello, and then forget about it. But your publications, your course curriculum certify your bona fide cross-disciplinary bridge uh, building so that not only uh, Peter Betke and, and Virgil Storr, uh, uh, they have taught economic sociology courses, but now I have learned that the department includes economic sociology as a field of studies and arguably a first for an economics department. So the, all that means that I don't have to convince you, I hope, that uh, social relations and culture matter for economic lives. And as it turns out, a, an intellectual uh, highlight uh, of my last few decades has been the growing exchange of ideas uh, with economists, and, and most memorable, as I uh, just mentioned to Peter, several years ago, uh, Avinash uh, Dixit and I co-organized an economic sociology workshop, the first, the probably the only at Princeton, hosting speakers from both disciplines whose work focused on the social organization of economic life. And also, and also at first, we co-taught a graduate seminar on issues of common interest to both uh, disciplines. And I was further uh, drawn into the world of economics as a member of the advisory council for the Paris School of Economics when it, as some of you may know, it reorganized the teaching of economics uh, in Paris. But of course, honoring Eleanor Ostrom today goes much beyond celebrating cross-disciplinary exchanges. With bold concepts, methodological versatility, as you just mentioned, Peter, refusal to accept theoretical straitjackets, and unrelenting persistence, Ostrom pioneered a radical rethinking of economic activity. From my perspective as an economic sociologist, one of her most transformative contributions was paying close attention to the critical significance of social relations for explaining economic governance. 
countering rational individual-driven accounts, she demonstrated how, when, and why others matter in shaping economic arrangements. And she also, of course, shook up standard economic theory by including uh, cultural norms within her explanatory uh, model and by insisting that abstract models be grounded in observations of real people involved in economic activity. Actually, I, I'll confess that after spending many days uh, diving into Ostrom's uh, brilliant oeuvre as I prepared for today's talk, I was actually tempted to give you the zealous or precis on her work rather than tell you about my own work. But, but don't worry. <laughs> I'm too well aware that many of you in this room are much greater Ostrom experts than, than I am. So instead, what I will do for the allotted about 50 minutes now, and this big clock is, will remind me, um, I, I will f I, this is what I'll do. I'll briefly identify a transformation in how economic sociologists, and Peter already kind of gave a preview of that, in, how economic sociologists, including myself, have grappled uh, with explaining the place of social relations in shaping economic activity. And then I'll explore with you how social relations matter for a set of economic arrangements that I call circuits of commerce. So, you know, to be sure, it's no big news to report that social relations matter for economic sociologists. Uh, you know, from the 1980s launching of what is called the new economic sociology, social ties have remained a staple explanatory element. Yet the usual way of introducing social relations had been as context, as external facilitators or constraints on economic processes. And that's what we mean by the embeddedness of economic phenomena in social processes. Context analysts look at standard economic phenomena such as labor markets, commodity markets, corporations, and she show how social networks as context shape the options of economic actors. And, and, and of course, these studies uh, jump-started a major uh, research agenda focusing on the role of social networks, mostly in economic activity. But 21st century analyses have moved on, not all, in a way, from context accounts towards the formulation of more subversive explanations of economic activity. So in this alternative uh, framework, we identify social processes and social relations no longer as context, but at the very heart of economic activity, including the previously unexplored territory of markets and money. So that in the process, straightforward social network conceptions of interpersonal ties shift to an emphasis on the variable quality, intensity, meaning, and consequences of relational ties among economic actors. And in, so in this alternative view, negotiated and dynamic interpersonal interactions, not the individual, become the starting point for economic processes. At the same time, economic sociologists have expanded the territory of what we consider to be core economic institutions and, and quote, real economic activity. Sure, you know, studies of capitalist firms and production markets certainly advance the, the field. 
But many of the younger scholars are increasingly stepping outside those domains as they explore household economies, art worlds, markets for human goods, care economies, consumption practices, and more. Importantly, this broadened lens breaks down artificial boundaries between the supposedly sturdier quote, real economic spheres such as firms and corporations and the allegedly peripheral or less seriously economic uh, domains. What's more, while in its earliest stages, economic sociology remained sort of allergic to cultural analysis, uh, mostly in an effort, it was mostly in an effort to distance itself from discredited Parsonian notions of an autonomous culture. The field has now fully legitimized the place of shared meanings in its explanations of economic activity. But here, culture is not conceived as an autonomous force behind or above social life, but as a constitutive element of social relations. Most recently, we see a surge, it's really very interesting to see, of path-breaking studies addressing the morality of markets, which is an intriguing shift that we can talk about later if, if you're interested. As it turns out, as I was preparing this, a couple of days ago, Princeton University Press sent me a just-born book by Daniel Beunza, a wonderful young uh, sociologist, called Taking the Floor, Models, Morals, and Management in a Wall Street trading room. It's an ethnography, and it's about moral behavior in financial organizations. So I have spent the past four decades trying to make sense of the intersections among economic activities, small-scale interpersonal relations, and shared culture. In books on the morality of life insurance, the economic valuation of children, the social meaning of money, intimate economies, I try to uh, explore how people manage um, uh, connected lives as they establish multiple links between their economic transactions and personal relations. And I'm countering what I call mistaken yet ingrained hostile worlds views that define economic activity and relations as separate spheres necessarily hostile to each other. I show instead how people constantly, we, <laughs> meld personal relations and economic transactions. But, importantly, they do not do so randomly. It matters greatly that the type of economic uh, transaction, as well as the form of payment, matches the meaning of the particular relation. I call this matching of relations, transactions, and media relational work. In all economic action, I argue, again, all of us, people, differentiate among our social relations. And for each category of relation, people erect a boundary, mark the boundary by means of names and practices, designate certain forms of economic transaction and media as appropriate for the relation, bar other transactions and media as inappropriate. You know, that's, and you can find a million examples. That's why we tip a waiter, but not our spouse. Uh, we may give our child a weekly allowance, but rarely our grandfather. We pay our employee with a salary, not a gift certificate, you know, unless it's Christmas. We all care a great deal about such distinctions. The wrong kind of payment might sometimes amuse us, but still, you know, more often it will shock or offend us. Why? 
because mistakes violate our expectations of how social relations should work. Just imagine my shock if one of my students offered me a thick envelope full of $100 bills as an incentive to teach a better class. I just thought, or if some of you gave me some money to stop talking. <laughs> okay, in any case, what? Weird. Okay. For, for, and actually, I wanted to, I, you know, this is a concrete and uplifting example of how forms of payment matter. And I'll turn to the wonderful, our honoree, as you, many of you know, she donated her share of the 1.4 million Nobel Prize money to the Indiana Workshop. So what was she doing? She transformed a monetary price into a donation that certified her meaningful relation to the workshop. Such distinctions, or what I call monetary earmarking, defy entrenched assumptions of money's fungibility. And I know that tomorrow morning, with some of you, we will discuss more this whole money issue. Now, in, in this decades-long exploration of such meaningful economic relationships, I became increasingly puzzled by the creation of certain unexpected forms of economic organization, what I identify as circuits of commerce. I was especially intrigued by the management of social relations in the formation, in the transformation, or the breakdown of those circuits. So that's what I'll do. I'll turn now to the circuits and start our conversation with four examples. One, why do immigrants, often at the expense of their own needs, set as a budgetary priority, sending large chunks of their hard-earned money to relatives in their country of origin? How do such transnational bonds shape the immigrant economy? Second, when legal tender works so well to bridge across commodities, transactions, and people, why do some people go to great lengths to produce these local alternative currency systems that are sometimes called social or civic currencies, some of them now digital, with their own names, their own rules, membership, trading, and value? Third puzzle, what explains the popularity around the world of informal lending and savings associations, such as the ROSCAS, the Rotating Credit and Savings Associations? How is it that people trust their money to potentially risky networks of acquaintances? And what explains that such collective arrangements frequently work with little default and considerable return to participants? Indeed, Fred Weary, in another very wonderful Russell Sage recent book, uh, he, Fred and his uh, collaborators, it's a book on financial citizenship, and they report how these lending circles have been galvanized by organizations such as the Mission Asset Fund as conduits for the unbanked to obtain formal credit scores. And fourth and final example from the corporate world. Given that many corporations still set up hierarchies with clear rewards and mobility, how is it that cliques of people promoting each other's welfare arise, frequently trading time off, swapping shifts, donating uh, leaves, and sharing uh, bonuses? Gerstel, another uh, excellent book by Gerstel and Clausen, it's a study of health professionals' time management in a set of health facilities they discovered the prevalence of co-worker schedule swaps. What is this? Well, to manage unexpected events, 
such as family illness or an emergency childcare, or to free uh, time for attending family uh, events, employees, they found, regularly swapped hours and schedules. And what, what they did is, in contrast to most studies that focus on vertical scheduling arrangements between supervisors and workers, Gerstel and Clausen identified a crucial uh, practice initiated by coworkers, you know, what I call a swapping circuit. And I ask, you know, when, why, and how do people create such distinct economic arrangements? What are their common uh, properties? Standard thinking about economic structures does not fully capture what's going on with these multiple, often surprising ways in which people organize their economic lives. Many of these economic connections do not function like markets or firms or hierarchies or networks, at least in the conventional understanding of those concepts. I'm glad you're back. I thought I had lost you. Okay, <laughs> already, okay. <laughs> and yet, and yet, and yet, we see them spurting in all sorts of locations. Sometimes we may dismiss them. We may not even notice them, precisely because they don't fit neatly within established frameworks. Now, Eleanor Ostrom certainly noticed. In studying economic governance, she focused her sharp analytical gaze precisely on social arrangements that did not, and I quote, closely resemble the standard models of a market or a hierarchy. And she set out to understand what she described, and again I quote from her, a wide diversity of institutional arrangements that humans craft to govern, provide, and manage public goods and common pool resources. And indeed, her discovery of common pool resource governance demonstrated local communities' ingenious creation of multiple arrangements for managing the equitable sharing of forest, freshwater, and more. By observing what was happening on the ground, her field studies revealed economic actors creating novel collaborative institutional arrangements independently from or despite government dictates or market intervention. What mattered for the creation of such bounded common pool arrangements was not individual rational egoists, as she called them, acting for short-term profit. She demonstrates instead, among other things, the crucial place of social relations and social communication, including face-to-face -face interactions along with shared norms and culture. To be sure, as she recognized, not all such common resource communities were successful, but when they worked, they relied on participants' dynamic social ties as well as their understanding of local norms. So Ostrom uh, replaced visions of, commons, of the commons' inevitable relational tragedy with evidence of participants' relational resilience and problem-solving creativity. And you know, her student and friend, Margaret Levy, a sociologist, aptly summed it up in her TEDx talk last year as she discussed uh, the moral economy. Ostrom Levy, uh, uh, Levy told her audience, and I quote, taught us that we are social and creative human beings who build communities and find solutions to common problems. There is a deep affinity between Ostrom's, uh, it's moving to me as I reread her, between Ostrom's common resource pool communities and my circuits, as both involve often overlooked 
special forms of economic arrangements which rely on informal governance in an exceptional way. And I wondered, as I was reflecting, if she and I both noticed these arrangements, not because we're women, but because as women, working in male-dominant fields, in my case, economic sociology, we surveyed the economic landscape as the Zimmelian stranger, which Zimmel, uh, York Zimmel described as, quote, freer practically and theoretically. In our case, perhaps, less beholden to mainstream paradigms of what constitutes core economic institutions. So I identify these alternative economic arrangements as circuits of commerce in the old sense of the world, word, where commerce meant conversation, interchange, intercourse, and mutual shaping. So what I'll do now is I'll define these circuits and then focus on two cases. One, the remittance puzzle, and second, the college circuit as an example of a separate category of organizational circuit, where I will tell you a little bit of my current work in progress on the college economy. And Stefan, you did tell me I could have an hour, right? So I won't. Okay. So first, what are circuits? Like a firm, a clique, a household, or an economic circuit is a distinctive form of economic interaction that recurs across an enormous variety of circumstances. How do we recognize a circuit? By the following characteristics. One, distinctive social relations among specific individuals. Second, shared economic activities carried on by means of those social uh, relations. Third, creation of common accounting uh, systems for evaluating economic exchanges, for example, special forms of money. Four, shared understandings concerning the meaning of transactions within the circuit, including their moral valuation. And five, a boundary separating members of the circuit from non-members with some control over transactions crossing the boundary. Relational work, which I mentioned before, is what sustains circuits as participants create viable matches among those meaningful relations, transactions, and media. Econo economists and sociologists and anthropologists who have noticed circuits in operation very often have treated them as imperfect markets or as institutional context for market transactions, but not usually as distinctive social structures with dynamics of their own. So circuits expands the re repertoire of economic structures that deserve close attention. Where are these circuits? Where do we find them? And as my initial um, uh, example suggests, we observe them in a wide range of contexts and social circumstances. They vary. Uh, circuits vary from relatively short-lived or fixed-term, not instantaneous, to long-term, from intimate to impersonal, from small to large. Since I, I introduced this term, this concept, this way of thinking about 20 years ago, other scholars have applied the framework, younger scholars, the framework to a remarkable variety of economic arrangements. Some examples include marvelous studies on the modeling industry, art markets, biomedical donations, the, the commerce on cadavers, the Brazilian informal economy, the sharing of credit cards among low-income households in Chile, relations between U.S. large manufacturing firms and sub contractors, and more. And so it's been 
interesting to watch the proliferation of circuits research. Um, uh, earlier this month, for instance, faculty and graduate students met at the University of Sao Paulo for a meeting sponsored with Princeton, on, I wasn't there, on circuits of economic uh, life in times of crisis. I said I wasn't there because it's not like I'm doing this, you know, these are these younger people. One of my current, I wanted to mention that one of my current uh, students, Gus de Guran, reported at that meeting on an excellent dissertation in which he shows how the Hawala, and some of you may know that which is an informal refugee kind of circuit of monetary remittances sent via brokers for Leban from Lebanon and Turkey, currently sustains the fragile war-torn Syrian community. Recently, in terms of circuits, I've even heard from non-academic circuit enthusiasts that are applying the framework to the creation of cryptocurrency exchanges and token sales. So as you can see, and I mentioned this because you can see they're not an exotic phenomenon outside more conventional economic transactions, but they emerge in multiple economic uh, settings. Nor are circuits archaic leftovers on their way to extinction replaceable by more efficient problem-solving uh, organizations. Note, again in the affinity uh, with, with Ostrom, that in a 2003 interview after she and Vincent received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Mercatus uh, Center and other institutions, she was emphatic in dismissing arguments about the commons governance institutions as, quote, relics of a dying past. Still, you may wonder, why invent new concepts such as circuits when we already have the old reliable network tool? In what ways does thinking about circuits improve on just thinking about networks? After all, network analysts have developed an impressive set of tools for deciphering economic connections. But they've largely focused on relatively stable patterns and configurations of social relations. They have not explored the variable content of transactions or their meanings, nor the incessantly negotiated interactions they involve. And as I searched for ways to better understand these features, I was drawn to the concept of circuits in a way to flesh out and inject energy, dynamic energy, into the network skeleton of relations. A French scholar once characterized my effort as inserting quote, le coeur dans les networks. But, um, but you know, uh, it's, it's circuits, is, you know, it's not just constituted by adding and mixing culture into networks. They define a special uh, social structure, as I've tried to mention. So to, to, to give you a more concrete example, let's return to the remittance puzzle. Migrants' remittances, if you think about it, are a wonder to behold. Almost any time substantial numbers of low-wage migrants move in streams from low-wage areas to distant high-wage areas while leaving significant numbers of relatives uh, behind, remittance systems spring up, and they do so without any globally available cultural model no promoting worldwide organization, no legal requirement. Yet, they operate in remarkably similar ways across the globe, with migrants at their destinations regularly earmarking major shares of their usually meager wages for transmissions to home folks through courier or now digitally or wire services. 
and receiving accounts of how the remittances uh, are spent. Migration scholars have amply documented the economic significance of these monetary transfers. For 2019, remittance flows to low and middle income countries are estimated by the World Bank to reach $550 billion en route to become the largest source of external financing for you know, developing countries. So these are not little monies. But how do these transfers uh, work? What explains that many migrants give remittances priority over paying their own bills in the United States? To better understand what's at stake, I thought I would read you from a story you may have read by Junot Diaz, the, the very vivid Dominican-American novelist. When he, uh, This is a story that appeared in The New Yorker called The Money, and he reminisces about the poignant, special meaning of his family's remittance fund. And I'll quote from his story. All the Dominicans I knew in those days sent money home. My mother certainly did. She didn't have a regular job outside of caring for us five kids, so she scrimped the loot together from whatever came her way. My father was always losing his forklift job, so it wasn't like she had a steady flow ever. But my mother would rather have died than not send money back home to my grandparents in Santo Domingo. They were alone down there, and those remittances beyond material support were a way, I suspect, for mommy to negotiate the absence, the distance caused by our diaspora. Hard times or not, she made it happen. She chipped dollars off from the cash papi gave her for our daily expenses, forced our already broke family to live even broker. All of us kids knew where that money was hidden. Our apartment wasn't huge, but we all also knew that to touch it would have meant a violence approaching death. I, he writes, who would not take the, who could take the change out of my mother's purse without even thinking, couldn't have brought myself even to look at that forbidden uh, cash. Read the whole story because it's, it's worth it. But why should we consider the DS household economy as part of a circuit? Let's do the checklist together. One, which set of distinctive social relations are involved here? Well, notice the relational linkages marked by the remittance transfer, connecting Diaz's uh, mother and her parents, but with consequences for her household's other ties, her husband and her children. Two, what about shared economic activities? Uh, that's the transfer of household funds involved in the remittance transaction. In the Junot account, we also see a decrease in the family's consumption, those ties, in order to safeguard money for the grandparents. Three, common accounting systems. Here we have the remittance money as a distinct currency. It, it, you know, his report shows that it's not just a social differentiation, but even a physical earmarking of the money, hidden in a special spot, kept separate from the daily housekeeping expenses. Four, shared understandings concerning the meaning of transactions within the circuit. Junot clearly conveys the remittances crucial, uh, sentimental, almost sacred significance for his mother and the unquestionable moral boundary between that money earmarked for the grandparents in Santo Domingo and ordinary coins in Diaz's mother's purse. And finally, 
as for the boundaries separating members of the circuit from those outside. In this case, kin relations establish those boundaries. Then in other remittances uh, cases, the boundary setting is more challenging as they may include more distant kin, neighbors, friends, children's caretakers, clergy, even local officials. As the Diaz family example, I hope, uh, you know, conveys, participants in this remittance circuit are engaged in relational work matching a specific category of monetary uh, transfer to a set of deeply meaningful and long-term intimate ties. And they protect that money from being confused with ordinary spending money. And notice again that contra those hostile world's views I mentioned earlier that separate intimacy from the allegedly necessarily tarnishing contact with economic exchange. Here's a tangible example of how remittance money serves to affirm and maintain long-distance family ties between immigrants and family uh, back at home. So, um, you know, of course, circuits don't always uh, run smoothly. In remittance transactions, for instance, participants often struggle not only over who has the right to receive remittances or who has the duty to send them, but over quantities of money or in its uses. In, in such circuits, moreover, those who fail to, in the remittance circuits, those who fail to meet their obligations feel sanctions and then exclusion. In migration remittance systems, participants regularly warn, shame, and sanction, and finally can expel defaulters or foot-dragging members. They often become pariahs. So we shouldn't sentimentalize circuits as, you know, all good stuff, or as economic structures that automatically eliminate inequality. What we still don't know is how much and which kind of social inequality is consistent within circuits. You know, when, when do circuits serve to reproduce, challenge, or mask class inequalities or categorical forms of inequality, such as gender uh, or race? Drawing from a series of ethnographies uh, in Senegal and South India, Isabel Guerin, a you know, wonderful anthropologist some of you might be interested in reading, she documents what she calls the gender of financial circuits. And she looks particularly at women-led informal uh, lending arrangements. And she links their emergence to women's unequal access to household resources and more broadly to the financial sphere. Meanwhile, in terms of inequality, Juliet Shore and her collaborators discovered what they call a paradox of openness and distinction in their investigation of the U.S. sharing economy. In this, again, what they call circuits in construction, they describe the, you know, they, they study four settings uh, of, you know, the sharing economy, and they found displays of class power and levels of high levels of inequality despite the site's professed egalitarian aspirations. And this puzzle of relational inequality within seemingly egalitarian circuits is what I'm curious about now and is at the center of my current research on the college economy. Now notice the um, 
case of remittances, the case of informal loans or the sharing economy, represent one category of grounds up emerging circuits akin, clearly, to Ostrom's common pool communities. What I'm working on now, and I'm eager to hear your response, I'm treating the college economy as a separate category of organizational circuit. And what I'll do for the next 10 minutes or so, right? Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the study and how we can conceptualize the college economy as a circuit. We know, of course, when it comes to college and economy, we know a lot about inequality of access to college. Uh, we know about the $1.5 trillion in student debt. We read the headlines about wealthy parents and their college bribery uh, schemes. We bemoan the marketization of education. But we know very little about how the internal college economy actually works. Certainly, economic sociologists have not studied, they sidelined the topic, which is not surprising because it's outside the field's concentration on institutions of economic production. So what I'm doing in collaboration with Lauren Gaida, she is a former student and she now is assistant professor of medicine, health, and society at Vanderbilt, we've been trying to answer this very specific question. As elite universities and others increasingly recruit low-income students into a mostly affluent campus community, how do students manage cross-class relations in their everyday economic interactions with roommates, with friends, and with teammates? And here, uh, bringing our honoree again, some of you surely know, and she talks about it in her Nobel Prize biography, she recalled her own challenges as the, quote, poor kid in a rich kid's school. Another connection. So what we're doing, focus in Princeton for all kinds of reasons, and we can talk about that. Lauren and I investigate affluent and low-income students' management of cross-class economic transactions by which, in which we include bartering, swapping, money loans, gift exchanges, sharing of expenses. What does it mean, for instance, for students to split the bill for dorm purchases or dinner at a restaurant when one student is drawing her money from her parents' monthly allowance while her roommate must pay with money earned from a campus job? We're also investigating cross-class relations created within the student labor market, another fascinating uh, category of labor market. Campus jobs, as many of you know, sometimes involve students in worker-patron interactions with other students, and then they're in the classroom together. How is that dual and unequal relationship managed? And to answer so, uh, these questions and, and a few others, we identify the campus as an organizational circuit, and within this circuit, we locate two class-based groups of students, right, representing totally opposite ends of the economic distribution the low-income full financial aid and the affluent zero financial aid. And we've done many, you know, 59 interviews, uh, student focus groups, you know, for me, and you mentioned my historical research. Well, you know, after a career specializing in historical documents, this was the first time that I found myself uh, speaking to live informants rather than dead respondents' testimonies. So how would I, you know, how do we see the college economy as an organizational circuit? Well, 
It has a distinctive set of social relations between students, faculty, administrators, staff, alumni, etc. Two particular economic transactions, uh, tuition payments, financial aid awards, alumni donations, endowments, and the form of payment matters, right? Students receive grants or scholarships not to be confused with a handout or a welfare payment. Nor is the money classified as a repayable com commercial loan in the case that we're studying of Princeton. Princeton's 201 shift of college support from loans to grants converted the financial relationship between institution and student into a gift-like transaction. And a gift, but again, not a charity, since students are expected to earn part of that income with jobs. And there are specialized media of exchange within college, right? Princeton has the Tiger card. You have, I think, the Mason money. And also, there are shared and constantly negotiated local understandings about the college um, uh, transactions, and finally, boundaries that create a differentiated economic world separate, as students put it, from the, quote, real world. You know, it's the Princeton bubble, but, you know, that's, that's the kind of world we're trying to understand. And as a normative ideal, the college circuit endorses what we call a democratic pact. What, what's that? An attempt to create a communal economy. Think about it. Within college gates, class inequalities are expected to blur so that all students are equally able to participate in an egalitarian economy, taking the same courses, housing in similar dorms, similar access to food, health care. Nobody should pay more to get a higher grade. But how, you know, how do students reconcile their starkly diverse economic backgrounds in a campus culture that proclaims an egalitarian code as its normative ideal? What we find is affluent and low-income students engaging in relational work as they try to match the form of their economic transactions and the media they employ to the type of egalitarian relationships valued on, on campus. There's no time, obviously, to report our findings. I'll just very briefly, and remind me, I guess I, in my enthusiasm for um, reading Ostrom and all that, and I'm a very big stickler for time, but um, how are we doing? Uh, you're good. We have about minutes, so we can OK, but I want Q&A. OK, so we're, then I'm good. Yeah, I, I won't talk quickly, which I tell, I, you know, I always tell my students, skip, but don't talk quickly if you have to. Okay. <laughs> Okay, okay, so it's not like anything, you know, all this is interesting stuff. I'm not revolutionizing the world, so if you miss three words, it doesn't matter. Okay, I just want to share with you briefly the case of gift giving. Think about gift exchanges between unequal partners as really generating very delicate relational challenges. Gifts are usually defined as bestowals marked by intimacy as well as the relative equality of donors and recipients. But they can quickly slip into a handout, implying subordination of the recipient. Students, therefore, worry about giving and receiving gifts of money or in kind in ways that does not undermine this egalitarian friendship. For example, and this came up many times, when a wealthy student notices her low-income roommate does not own a winter coat, how can she give her a coat and how can her roommate accept the gift without defining the coat as a charitable donation? How do you reciprocate that gift? 
And again, we found affluent and low-income students all kinds of ingenious relational work to distinguish gifts from charity and trying to establish the right kind of transaction for their relationship. Think about it, and in, 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 in I wanted to say this. Students are expected to interact as classmates, roommates, friends, teammates, not donors, creditors, money lenders, charity workers, debtors, or welfare recipients, right? You, ha you have to work. So um, I just give you one example. Laura, one of our interviewees, gave her friend a coat as a Christmas gift, as a Christmas gift. Otherwise, she explained, it would be, quote, kind of odd, a little bit too much like charity, and that'd be a little insulting. So it's like, here's a Christmas gift that is going to last you a long time, and I hope you like it. So what do we see here? Ritualizing the transaction preserves the exchange as a gift. It's given on Christmas. Of course, relational work uh, often fails. Again, we don't sentimentalize uh, these uh, transactions, students sometimes deliberately or through unintentional blunders, bring class inequalities to the foreground, calling into attention the nature of their relationship. And that is why when students disagree or cause offense, it is very frequently not over how much money should have been given or shared or loaned, but we find it's about, about misunderstandings or unsettling violations involving the meanings of the relationship. That's why even, and we're talking mostly about small sums of money here, even trivial sums of money can become a source of contestation. So these are some glimpses into the territory that we're exploring with a study of the college economy as a circuit. The as I see it, framing the organizational circuit or using that lens allows us closer inspection of students' underground economic lives. And, and I understand also that these students' everyday small monies within an Ivy League college may appear trivial, insignificant. But actually, precisely in times of radical economic inequality, an Ivy League campus provides like a unique microcosm of how inequality is negotiated face-to-face -face within a privileged setting. Face-to-face, -face, and I want to emphasize, in what is expected to be horizontal relations. There's lots of face-to-face -face hierarchical, right? And we're talking about care, nannies and, and their employers. This is an unusual situation. And as colleges intensify the recruitment of low-income applicants, scrutinizing students' cross-class experiences may help the program's success. So, so I, I hope uh, I have at least intrigued you by the concept of circuits as a way of exploring economic activity within and outside formal organizations, and more broadly as a lens for understanding the dynamic processes involved in creating multiple meaningful forms of economic life and their impact also for negotiating inequalities. And note also, I'm finished in three minutes. Again, one of the things you should never say in some and then continue. <laughs> okay, okay. And by showcasing it, the extensive range and variety of available economic arrangements, the notion of circuits undercuts 
you know, standard visions of a single unbridled uh, market that overpowers because it's one market overpowering everything. Not true. Circuits also offer analytical tools to access the sort of diverse local knowledge that Eleanor Ostrom so persuasively advocated as essential for more effective policy interventions. We should ask when and for which purpose should local economic initiatives be encouraged? And also when is government intervention necessary to prevent exploitation or other relational failures? And there's many other questions obviously remain, such as the role of new technologies in the creation or the policing or the transformation of circuits. And here I'll give you an example in, in a chapter about what she calls maverick mar uh, markets from a book that will be forthcoming in the next few years. I don't know how many of you know the eminent uh, sociologist, brilliant sociologist of finance, Karen Nor Setina. So she's writing, finishing a book from pipes to screens, the architecture of a global flow market. And her, uh, Setina's uh, uh, earlier investigations identified, she looked at circuits within the automated world of global financial traders. Now she's predicting that global financial markets and screen will fundamentally reconfigure patterns of social coordination. So, you know, things to explore. Um, let me return to Ostrom and how, she, how did she finish her 2009 Nobel Prize uh, lecture, Beyond Markets and, and States. She made an eloquent appeal for public policy to be directed, and again I quote because it's a very important uh, statement, the development of institutions that bring out the best in humans, that's what public policy should address. We need to ask how diverse polycentric institutions help or hinder the innovativeness, learning, adapting, trustworthiness, levels of cooperation of participants, and the achievement of more effective, equitable, and sustainable outcomes at multiple scales. My hope is that Ostrom's inspirational intellectual spark that we're honoring today, her attention to how social relations matter for economic governance, and her profound concern for others' welfare will continue to move many of us, especially you in this room, the younger generation, to work towards brighter economic futures. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.